This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Nice bit of sound. (laughs) So this station, I wonder even how often trains would run here. Yeah, it's not going to be like today where you have, you know, one every, every 10 minutes. Exactly, it's not like that. Um, and it would have taken, I think the train was over 40 minutes from here to London. Now it's 15 minutes. Meg Edwards and I have just stepped off the train in Slough, England, a town about 20 miles west of London. Back in 1845, Slough was small and sleepy. It was the perfect spot for John Tall to hide his mistress, Sarah Hart, and their two children. His new wife, Sarah Appleby, seemed to have no idea that he had a second family, another life. Tall would take the same train route we just took whenever he came to visit them. How far do you know? Is it from Berkhamstead to... Berkhamstead to here? Yeah. It's about a 40-minute drive now. So it's not easy to get to. Yeah. And he would have had to go back into London, presumably. So from here, back into London, then back out to Berkhamstead. Oh, really? Yeah. Slough is much busier on this day than it was in 1845. Okay, now which way do I look? Left or right? (laughs) This way, yeah. See, you look both ways also. I look both ways, but that's because someone said to me recently that I'm overcautious with crossing roads. (laughs) But I just don't trust people. I don't always trust people either. Do you know anything about Slough now? Yeah, it's Slough, it's quite industrial, outside of the city. The website was kind of, <laughs> about Slough, was a little bit self-deprecating. Why? <laughs> it was saying, like, um, people think of Slough as a place with no culture, <laughs> but Aww. we have loads of culture. <laughs> so I wonder what this would have been like in 1845 and all this mm-hmm. It presumably would have been quite remote. These wouldn't have been here, obviously, the buildings. This would have been the one spot to get in and out. So Slough would have been very rural, I'm assuming, in the 1840s. Yeah, and the cottage was kind of in Salt Hill, which is quite green, quite remote, very close-knit community. Certainly different to the bustling parts of London that John Tall was, was working in. Sarah Hart and the kids lived in a small place on the outskirts of Slough in a district called Salt Hill. Surely no one would have recognized John Tall there. I wonder also why he chose Salt Hill. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, there's no reason that anyone would need to go to Salt Hill or Slough. I think it's pretty, <laughs> pretty undetected. Um, very separate from his life. 
Sarah Hart was incredibly unhappy with John Tall. After a seven-year secret relationship, she was tired of struggling to raise little Alfred and young Sarah. She needed more funds. One pound a week just wasn't enough. That was about $150 a week in today's money. Tall was struggling himself, though you should feel much less sympathy for him. He had returned from the penal colony in Australia a rich man. For a while, his family life had fallen apart after losing both of his sons and then his wife to tuberculosis. And then he had discovered newfound security and acceptance by marrying a birthright Quaker woman named Sarah Appleby. But England was entering an economic depression and it was dramatically affecting John Tall's import and export business. And now Sarah Hart, the secret mother of his two children, was pressuring him for more child support. Crime historian Nell Darby says John Tall's concerns went beyond just the money. He was very concerned about his wife finding out about the affair. And it's that kind of um, fear of being discovered that you're kind of enjoying this illicit relationship. But then when when it's threatened with exposure, you suddenly have to face the reality of it and what you could lose from it. And that kind of fear pushes you to take some action. I've seen that in, in quite a few Victorian cases where it's that fear of exposure, you know, because obviously appearances matter so much in 19th century society that there's this fear of your kind of ordinary domestic life being kind of blown apart. And she's demanding more money. And also the, the monetary fear that, you know, um, being found to be the father of Sarah Hart's children means that then, you know, there, there is this potential that it's going to cost him money. He's going to have to pay maintenance to her for the upkeep of herself and children. We know that there's often a trigger in violent cases involving family. I asked author Carol Baxter about John Tall's trigger in 1845. There's always a trigger. The trigger was that he wasn't giving Sarah Hart the money she needed to support her children. She was being forced to pawn her goods to get the money. And so she sent him a letter saying, can you please send me the money? I need more money to keep supporting the children. That was serious enough to make John Tall very nervous. Sarah Hart had been pressuring him for a while, but here's the real trigger. Carol Baxter and Hillary Fox say that apparently Sarah Appleby, his wife, found that letter demanding Tall provide her with more money. She read it and then questioned him. And she said, who is this woman, you know, who has demands on you financially? He was down on his luck at the time, so he couldn't afford to increase it. She wrote a letter that Sarah knew about her. Um, that was outrageous as far as he was concerned because it was threatening to spoil his status in Berkhamsted, ruin his life, really. And he managed to fob her off, but that was the trigger. Maybe if John Tall had only been wealthier, then he could have kept her and the children a secret forever. But he didn't. And Sarah Hart had finally had enough of John Tall's lack of support financially and emotionally. He would never commit to her. He had married another woman, a Quaker. He would never recognize their children together publicly. Sarah Hart lived in shame, but not anymore. I asked Angela Buckley about Sarah Hart's decision to demand more support from Tall. It seemed very brazen for the 19th century. 
finally this woman is standing up for herself, yes. which I don't. Does that seem common in the 1800s in England, or do you think most women just took what they could get if they were mistresses with children? Yeah, I suspect that's true, that they did take what they could get, and they might have threatened. I think those women would have done all they could to get by. You know, they might have ended up in the city, on the streets. They might have ended up as sex workers, as all sorts. They might have ended up in the workhouse. You know, I think there were probably far more women in Sarah Hart's position who would have just been discarded and would have just had to manage somehow. I wondered why John Tall hadn't just stopped paying long ago, just stopped showing up. I asked Meg Edwards if it had been perhaps fear. I imagine it was a combination of things. If he had gone cold turkey and just not given any more money, she's a liability for sure. I also think traveling from Berkhamstead to Slough in those days was quite a journey. It wasn't super easy. You know, he would have gone from Berkhamstead into London, changed stations, and then gone from Paddington to Slough. It seemed clear that he was making this journey for a reason. So I think it was a number of things. Convenience, perhaps a sense of duty a little bit. Perhaps he felt a bit of guilt. But yeah, he was still absolutely seeing her as as a mistress. I'm sure part of those reasons were was sex. But Sarah Hart was practical. She needed more money. It was that simple. And she felt no qualms about demanding it. Suddenly, Sarah had gone from being a pawn to being almost a queen. She had started to have a voice, and she made that voice clear in her decision to ask him for money, and that was when she became a threat. So that was when everything started to unravel, basically. She was threatening to expose his secret. He couldn't just give her money because he was struggling financially. And perhaps he chose not to do so. And perhaps he wanted the whole problem just to go away. How would John Tall make it all go away? Would he scare Sarah Hart so much with threats of violence that she would finally leave? Would he threaten to send the kids away? Or worse... If you've listened to this show before, you probably have a good idea. He goes to the apothecary. He purchased it from a regular place in London where he would go for his apothecary needs. Apparently, he used this prussic acid, which is cyanide, for treating his varicose veins. It was called Steele's acid, which was also known as cyanide. People used to treat their varicose veins with a mixture containing prussic acid, which is alarming because, of course, cyanide is an incredibly lethal poison. And if you didn't know how to handle it correctly, you could die. But John Tall did know how to use prussic acid. So he bought that bottle, and then he dropped it. On this occasion, I believe, he went a second time and told the apothecary that he dropped the first one and he needed a replacement, the reason for him going in again. That's what he told the man at the apothecary, but I doubt it. It sounds like an excuse to purchase another bottle, but why would John Tall need two bottles of prussic acid? He returned home and worried, and then plotted. The 
the critical day is New Year's Day 1845. On that day, he heads to London and tries to get the money he needs to pay Sarah, and he does succeed in getting the money. So that's interesting in itself. He does have the money. He's got a choice to make on that day. Tall slid the Bank of England bills in his pocket, the amount he had agreed to pay Sarah Hart to help support Alfred and young Sarah. He also held the prussic acid. So he is equipped with the prussic acid, gets onto a train from Paddington Station and goes to Salt Hill. He goes to Sarah, he gets the the four o'clock train from London to Slough. As the passenger train whizzed by houses along its route, John Tall gazed out the window. He had two choices, and both were hidden beneath his dark coat, the money and the poison. The first one, the money, represented his ruin if his wife discovered his infidelity. The other, the prussic acid, could solve all of his problems. He could kill Sarah Hart, the mother of his children, and the keeper of his secrets. There would be no more threats, no more expensive child support payments. John Tall mulled over both choices. Would he make the right one? You wouldn't be listening to me right now if he did. He gets off the train and he walks to Sarah's place at Salt Hill. It's January, so yes, it's dark, but there are lights around the railway station. So people see him. He's in his Quaker garb. He is distinctive. He is seen. He heads to Sarah's place. The darkness of the winter cloaked him that early evening, and his clothing helped the clothing of a Quaker. As Carol Baxter mentioned, people at the railway station in Slough recognized his garb. He was clearly a Quaker. His clothing gave him away. It's very distinctive. A long, dark coat, a a hat, even just the silhouette of a Quaker would have been quite recognizable. Angela Buckley says that wearing the Quaker clothing seems like a careless mistake. What strikes me as odd, why he went dressed as a Quaker, which was so distinctive, because if he really wanted to go and commit crime under the cloak of darkness, why was he wearing something that was quite so distinctive? It does seem a little self-defeating, but I'm also not really surprised. Sometimes people can't break their habits, even if they intend to commit a crime. I learned that by researching my second book, American Sherlock. Forensic scientist Oscar Heinrich was the focus of that book. In 1921, he worked on a case involving a Catholic priest who had been kidnapped in Colma, California, right from his home. The kidnapper had left a partially handwritten ransom note with a distinctive writing style, sort of extra loopy. Investigators handed Heinrich the ransom note and asked him to profile the kidnapper who ultimately did kill the priest. Heinrich analyzed the note and turned to the investigators. He said, I have no idea who this man is. You can imagine they didn't find that comment helped. But Heinrich gleaned some information from those loopy letters. When you find him, he said, you will discover that he was once a professional baker. 
Heinrich said that the handwriting was distinctive. A trained baker had written a note. And he was right. Heinrich believed that a baker who killed someone was still a baker with a baker's habits. Perhaps John Tall's beliefs in Quakerism were so deeply rooted in his identity that wearing his Quaker clothing wasn't a conscious choice. It was who he was. John Tall arrived that night and rapped on Sarah Hart's door. The kids were asleep. Sarah seemed happy to see him. So he had prussic acid in his pocket when he went to visit Sarah. And it seems like he sent her out for a glass of porter to get some beer at the local pub, and she came back with it. He poured her a stout and they drank together. And all we can think is that he put it in her drink. But there were doubts cast later on, but whether they were just people with stories, it's very hard to know. But I think the most likely thing is that he put it in her drink. We know little about what happened after that. We just have what the neighbours say they heard, which was not a friendly conversation. Some sounds of fighting. The neighbours hear some, some shouts. We don't know what they were fighting about. He might have tried to call off the affair. He might have argued with her about the letter she sent his wife. He might have refused to pay her child support. It could have been all of those things. Maybe John Tall was searching for any excuse to not do what he was about to do. But whatever Sarah Hart and Tall were arguing over, it soon stopped. And now someone seemed to be in pain. The woman who lives next door hears some very strange moans. The neighbor's name was Mary Ann Ashley. She heard moaning and maybe a stifled scream. She was alarmed. She picks up a candle and goes outside to see what's happening. And she sees him, this man, come out the front door and hurry down to the front gate. And she calls out to him, is anything the matter with Mrs Hart? But he doesn't respond. He is seen fleeing quite quickly from the scene and stopped by a neighbour. I don't know whether this is just nosiness and neighbourhood gossip. He was seen to be quite a little bit startled, a little bit uneasy going from the scene. Marianne gripped her candle and walked faster in the cold night down her garden path. And she goes down to the front gate and gets through hers and gets to his. And he's stuck on the other side, unable to open the gate. And so she says, you know, the gate gets stuck and I can help you do it. And she reaches over and opens it for him. But as she lifts up his candle, she can see that he is the Quaker who comes to visit Sarah every so often. So he walks through the gate and heads off back towards Slough Station. Once again, John Tall was silent and in a hurry. The wind blew as John Tall walked quickly from Sarah Hart's house in Slough to the train platform. He was in a hurry to escape the scene he had left behind. 
His great-great-granddaughter, Hillary Fox, says none of this seemed to be well-planned. I don't think he was too clever on, on, on that side of things, the way he did it. He was seen going in, he was seen going out. Everyone heard the cries, and yet he'd obviously planned his escape. Back at the cottage, the neighbor watched Tall disappear from her view sometime after 7 p.m. Then she rushed to Sarah Hart's cottage door. She comes into the place, finds Sarah sprawled on the floor with her mouth frothing and moaning, moaning. And she calls the doctor, but Sarah's glazed. It's not really even moans, it's almost just expulsions of air. Marianne tried to offer Sarah water, but she couldn't drink. By the time they find Sarah, she's in her death throes. She's just moaning and they tried to give her some water, but of course that wasn't, that just dribbled out of her mouth and could have drowned her. She gripped her stomach and cried. It was a painful death. Crime historian Angela Buckley says the doctor stared down at Sarah and immediately looked for clues. We don't know. There are no no witnesses. To the only witness to the to the actual crime is Sarah Hart herself, and she's died. The children don't appear to have seen anything. Sarah Hart was gone after a short, difficult life. Sarah was a mother who tried all she could to give her young son and daughter a good life despite their neglectful, difficult father. And now she had been murdered by that same man, someone she had trusted, someone she had once wanted to marry. At the cottage, the doctor examined Sarah's body for trauma. She hadn't been shot or stabbed or beaten or strangled. There were no markings on her body. It didn't look like there had been a struggle. There's a doctor who is on site for Sarah. She she passes away. And immediately, I think they suspect poisoning, just in the way that she was found, the way she was gasping for air. Poisoned? The doctor knew she had been murdered, probably by the man dressed as a Quaker who ran from the cottage. Who else could it be? And the doctor said to the neighbour what happened, and the neighbour mentioned the Quaker leaving Sarah's house and that he came from London. She didn't really know his name. She thought his name was something like Talbot. And she, though, though the kids did refer to him as tall, but they thought it was T-A-L-L, not the name T-A-W-E-L-L. And so she told the police about that. The doctor looked around the cottage for clues, and he found a few. So they suspect poisoning straight away and the circumstances that they, they found the situation in. There were a couple of bottles, little bottles, left. Probably not in the way that the newspapers had, had painted the, the picture. Literally painted the picture of just two open bottles next to her dead body. I think that's a little bit too, um, <laughs> a little bit too obvious. I don't think it was that silly. I told Carol Baxter that this seemed to be a very cruel way to murder someone. Cyanide is very painful, but I had never heard it called prussic acid. Most people have heard of cyanide. What they are unaware of is the fact that in the old days, cyanide was called prussic acid. Prussic acid devolved from the use of animals, bones and things that actually made the colour called Prussian blue. So it was actually the first man-made dye. 
I've read that they began to do experiments with it. And out of their experiments with prussic acid, they found that it was deadly, of course. But no one had actually been convicted of a prussic acid murder at that time. So it was quite a good drug to use to try and kill someone because there was no history of a conviction and it acted very quickly, as cyanide does. I know the spy stories of people using cyanide to die by suicide, but... You need to know what you're doing. So with his medical knowledge, he knew what drugs to try and use. Because, again, he was a medical man, he was able to get a poison like prussic acid, which the ordinary person couldn't get. After Sarah had died, the neighbour, Marianne, did something very smart. She and a neighbour called someone to help track down John Tall. She calls for another neighbour, I think, and then they call for the reverend, the town reverend, who comes and very quickly starts after him. This reverend was the cousin of the doctor at Sarah's house. He also stopped to alert a parish constable. Crime historian Angela Buckley says that a constable would have represented law enforcement in the mid-1800s in parts of England. So I think there's a parish constable. So presumably that was somewhere local to Salt Hill, a tiny village. Some of them still had parish constables at this time. And they realised that the most likely place for him to go would be to Slough Railway Station to get the train back to London. So really their only opportunity to find him for questioning. John Tall was on the run. Literally, he was heading quickly toward the Slough train station. He could board the next train, the 7.42 p.m., which was bound for London's Paddington station. He might just get away. John Tall claimed to be a Quaker to value and follow their tenants. But those tenants limited him. Because, really, John Tall mostly cared about himself and his own needs. He needed money, he needed sex, and he needed a respected reputation in a conservative community. Obviously, faith adds value to so many people's personal lives. But there are certainly other stories like Tall's where someone hides criminal behavior behind the cloak of religion. In 1960, Catholic priest John Fight sexually assaulted and murdered a 25-year-old Texas schoolteacher named Irene Garza. For decades, there were rumors that the Catholic Church covered up the murder to protect one of their priests, despite a lot of evidence against him. Fight wasn't convicted for Garza's murder until nearly 60 years later and he died in prison three years ago at age 87, having remained free for most of his life. Author Esther Zala says that religion doesn't always have as much impact on positive behavior as people would hope, and both John Fight and John Tall are good examples of that. 
most people are members of a religion and yet we see all forms of human behavior displayed in every religious community. So I'm not sure the religious community leadership or ideals has that much impact on people's conduct and behavior. I think that comes from elsewhere because otherwise we wouldn't have very good people and very bad people across the board in all religions. Meg Edwards says that the Quakers were and are a very respected religion and John Tall was a terrible representative of them. I just can't help but see that there are so many parallels between what John Tall does and how he uses his religion to benefit himself and to to save himself. One of the, the big things that we can learn about this case is that it is incredibly relevant today to how religious organizations, religious institutions are so quick to protect their own. One, to protect their own, and two, to save face. This is something that we, we, we see all the time with piousness of religion, particularly protecting white men from doing very violent crimes against women. John Tall had murdered a woman, the mother of his children. He had discarded her when she asked for too much, and he hoped that his clothing would mask who he really was. So let me just get my back. Sorry, what did you say? You've never been here. I've never been here, no. When Meg Edwards and I visited Slough, it wasn't just to see the place where John Tall had kept Sarah Hartz and their children hidden away. We also wanted to retrace his escape route from the night of the murder. But first, we'd have to find the right path. Um, right, Starbucks is there. <laughs> okay. We want to go this way, I think. Okay, you think around the corner? Yeah, I think it's in this direction. I think. <laughs> don't get us killed in Slough. I, won't. <laughs> I don't think there's a ton of crime in Slough, but maybe. I think there might be, actually. <laughs> you think so? Great. Slough may be a small town and a safe one, but that night, about 175 years ago, it was anything but safe for Sarah Hart. And if John Tall could just make it back to London, he would likely get away with murder. So he started from Salt Hill, which is where the cottage was, to get to Slough Station, which would have been, I mean, now it's a 20-minute walk or so. Um, He was on foot. Yeah. So Um, we're thinking 20-minute, 15 to 20-minute. I I wonder if he was running or if it was a brisk walk. I I would assume it's a brisk walk. In the middle of the night, though. Yeah. I mean, you know. I think uh, the only thing that would draw more attention to a Quaker is a running Quaker. Yeah. We did eventually orient ourselves, and then we retraced tall steps toward the train station. I always think it's weird, this, you know, when you're walking and you're like, these are, even though the pavement's different, these are the streets that somebody ran down to get away. Right. Lots and this would have been the station, right? Would yeah, this have been the real been. station? Yeah, look, at, look how old that looks. This would have been the station. Sure. Let me take a picture of it while we're yeah, here. Yeah, go for it. Meg's right. It really does look old, but you know how I am about details. I needed to know for sure. I would like to find out when the station was yeah. built. Maybe there'll be a plaque. Yeah, we I like to do that. Actually. You do love to do plaques we do. here. We don't stick murderers on them though. Yeah, yeah. It looks old to me. 
Papa does. <laughs> That's just a stab in the dark. Oh, Slough Railway Station, listed grade two, opened in 1884. So we would have missed this design to replace earlier Great Western Way. Okay. So same place. Yeah, same place. New building. Different building. And you would have seen that because it's a red brick and everything. Mm-hmm. But okay. Still old. So while it is more than 135 years old, this isn't the same building that John Tall desperately made his way towards back in 1845. And now we need to head back to London, just like John Tall hoped to do that cold January night. Express service is the 10.08. That's so you fine. want to do that, yeah, right? Yeah, I think that'll be fast. Platform right? three, yeah. Do we have time? You said platform three? Three, Oh, we have to go up? Yeah. Okay, let's go up. As he ran toward the train station's platform around 7.30 p.m., he was so close to freedom. John Tall knew that if he were caught this time, the Quakers couldn't save him. They wouldn't. His history is so interesting with, you know, this wasn't the first time he was facing the death sentence, which is, you'd think, terrifying and would really impact you and change your psyche and make you a little bit more wary of committing crimes, and it clearly didn't at all. He apparently wasn't wary at all. Clearly, this was premeditated because he brought the acid. He had thought this through. But Tall also seemed unconcerned about getting caught. He wore recognizable clothing. He was spotted leaving her house. And he killed her in a way that would cause her a lot of pain, a lot of moaning. So that's why neighbors were alerted immediately. I told Carol Baxter that I was confused. Was John Tall overly confident, which is why he didn't bother to hide his identity, or was he a master of self-sabotage? Probably a combination of the two. Why? The thing is, he attempted to kill Sarah three months earlier, and he got away with it. Three months earlier, John Tall made the same trip from London to Slough. He took the same walk to Salt Hill and knocked on the door of the cottage. He poured cyanide into her drink. Sarah Hart became very sick, violently ill. But Sarah didn't die. So he tried three months earlier, didn't kill her, eventually at some point found out that she wasn't dead, returned to see her again. He returned to see her first and probably found out she was alive. When Tall returned in December, he found Sarah Hart very much alive, I'm sure to his dismay. I've said this before about poison, it's a tricky weapon. A poisoner has to know what they're doing Too much, and there will be clear signs of poison during an autopsy. Too little, and the victim survives. And maybe they become suspicious. Unfortunately, Sarah Hart was very trusting. 
She didn't seem to suspect that Tall had tried to kill her. She never called a constable. She continued to have a relationship with him. When John Tall discovered that Sarah was alive, that is when he revised his plan. That's when he bought a second jar of prussic acid. That's when he made a plan to not make that mistake again. The next time, John Tall would make sure she was dead. He smiled warmly at Sarah Hart that night, masking his true intentions with false affection. And then he kissed her goodbye. And then he said he was going to come back the next week. Which was New Year's Day, the day he finally killed her? And what's interesting is he came back on a day, on a Wednesday, when he had normally attended his Quaker meetings. So it wasn't his normal day for visiting. So from that point of view, you can see a bit of uh, intent. Okay, so he was determined that this would be the day. But he had the money. So I would say he was still a little bit ambivalent about doing it. The fact that he was wearing his Quaker garb, but did he have any other garb? Probably no. I think he was a very arrogant, self-confident man who saw himself as being able to get away with it. If John Tall could only make it safely undetected to Paddington Station in London, he could vanish. It didn't matter who had seen him at Sarah Hart's cottage. No one in Slough knew his real name, not even his own children. Sarah was dead. Yes, he realized that he was dressed as a Quaker, but who would ever suspect a Quaker, a pious man, of murder? He could reach London, change his clothing, and disappear. He might even be able to return to his other family in Berkhamsted. His life could finally move forward, free of a demanding woman and dependence he had never wanted. But the reverend and the parish constable were right behind him. They knew where John Tall was going. They knew that he was dressed as a Quaker, and they knew Tall might have been a murderer. The pair rushed onward through the night, desperate to catch a Quaker at the train station. They needed to catch him before he got on the train from Slough, because once he got on the train, he was gone forever. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. The clock is ticking, ticking. The train, the 7.42 p.m. train from Slough is heading off to London. A number of respectable people saw him, people who didn't know each other. You know, he has the ticket, he has the first class ticket. Then suddenly, just before the train is about to depart, they saw this man in Quaker garb head to the first-class carriages, hop on, the bell whistled, and the train pulled out of the station and was gone. By some stroke of luck, the telegraph line was between those two stations. What did they do next? Because they didn't know who he was or where he was going. 
If you love a good, real ghost story, my audiobook, The Ghost Club, is available wherever you get your audiobooks. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my book, All That Is Wicked, which is a deep dive into the criminal mind. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Editors Jason Whaling and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Researcher Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.